Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodina Osban, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daft today, Masachat Sukkah, daft Samach Gimel, page 53. Now, the Gemara here uh, is also very long daft and very rich and full of a lot of details about the Simchat's base of Shareva. Um, I want to read one particular passage that is, I would say, maybe one of the more famous ones. And this describes some of the dancing that was done and celebration at the Simchas Beis HaShreva. Tanya. So we learned in a brisa. Amur Allah al-Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. So they said about Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, Kishahiyah Sameach Simchat Beit HaShreva, Hayano Tel Shmona Avukot Shaor. That when he would celebrate at the Simchat Beit HaShreva, he would... Um, Take you would basically juggle eight flaming torches. The And so he would toss one and catch one and they would not touch each other. Right. So it's interesting to me. They don't, you know, sort of have a word for juggling, but that's basically what they're describing here. And the other thing he would do is he would like lay himself down. He would prostrate himself and he would put his two thumbs in the ground and bow and kiss the floor, right? of The floor of the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash and straighten. So I think from this description, this was some type of like hand, you know, head stand he would do, um, but just balancing himself on his thumbs. No other creature could do this. The Zohi Kida. And this was also a type of bowing that was called a Kida that was performed by the by the Kohen Gadol. So remember, Shimon ben Gamliel is not a Kohen Gadol, right? He's an Asi. He's from the line of, um, of uh, uh, David HaMelech. Um, but they described this very famous type of bowing that he would do I again from the way it's described it sounds like it's some type of balancing that he would do with his thumbs Levi so then they described the story with Levi right so he did this kida in front of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and he basically like strained his leg doing it and he became you know uh, he he like you know became lame somehow like he either walked with a limp Something happened to his leg and he permanently injured his leg. The Gamra lay. And so the Gemara asked what caused him to do this. That one should never speak sort of, um, I don't know, how would you explain the word yatiach and uh, like uh, disrespectfully, I guess, um, or too boldly to God, right? Because somebody who talks that way, right, um, you know, they will become, this will be their punishment, that they will somehow become lame. Umanu Levi. And who is this person that Rabbi Elezer was, was, you know, explaining that this happened to? It was Levi. So in other words, the point is, is that the first part of this story says that he did it by injuring himself with the Kidah. But then Rabbi Elezer, that statement that Rabbi Elezer says is saying, no, there was this great person who you know, didn't speak appropriately to God, you know, and therefore this was their punishment. So in other words, how could we say then it was, you know, caused by um, him doing this kidah? Sorry. So the Gemara basically answers, no, there isn't a contradiction. 
this and that caused it. So in other words, he didn't speak the correct way to God. And therefore, he became injured when he did his uh, when he did this uh, kida. So I think that piece is interesting because it's sort of saying something about punishment, right? That punishment somehow sometimes takes place sort of in a natural way, right? In other words, like Levy did something that caused him to be injured. But the point is that we're supposed to have a reflection afterwards where we say when something like that happens to a person, right? Um, you know, maybe the reason why you got injured is because it was a punishment for something else. So it, 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 I think it's saying something significant about punishment here. And then finally, just to conclude with this piece, piece Levi Hayamitayel Kamed Derabi Bit Tamne Sakine, right? So Levi went in front of Rabbi Huda Nasi and he juggled eight knives. Shmuel Kame Shabor Maka Bitmane. Mazge Hamra, Shmuel would juggle before um, King Shapur eight glasses of wine and they didn't spill them. Abai Kame Zaraba, Bitmane Beye. So Abai would juggle before Raba eight eggs and obviously I guess didn't, you know, break them. But Amrile Barba and some say that he did it with four eggs. So, um, you know, I think this is a lovely piece that sort of describes sort of all the, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, what we see typically at a wedding, I would basically describe, you know, sort of these fantastical types of dancing and tricks that people do. And this was part of the Simcha Beta Shoeva. Um, but, you know, embedded in there is this little passage about Levi that I think is saying something about how punishment is somehow brought out in this world. So what I find interesting is I think that this is bridging, I would say, the previous staff with its more esoteric discussions, let's say. And the rest of this stuff, which seems to be a shift back to this discussion of the Beit HaMikdash, which I I feel like, I, I don't know if I understood how much Beit HaMikdash, um, dis- lore, history, d- description, halacha permeates the daf, including where it doesn't, o- like I might not have expected it always to be here, especially because Chazal themselves did not live in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. And yet they always, it, not always, but so often they do seem to be returning there for their discussion, which I, I understand is not the thrust of what you were saying here, Dana, but it is what struck me on on from what you were saying and also from the daf. Right. The other thing I would note here is that clearly they did some kind of some chazbeza shoeva. I think that I, what I don't understand about that last passage, let me back up, you know, with the description of the juggling with the knives, that is not in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. So the question is, are they just describing tricks that they knew how to do? Or was there still some type of Simcha's Beis HaShoeva celebration? And these were the things that they did. I mean, the way that we have a Simcha's Beis HaShoeva today, even though there's no Beit HaMikdash. I, I, you know, I think you can, I, I, my assumption is it was during a Simcha Beit HaShoeva celebration um, and not just sort of describing different tricks that people could do. One other thing I just want to note on this stuff is, um, at the bottom of the of the daf, there leads to a discussion about Hamish Asarama Look, these fifteen stairs, and it goes through, um, you know, starting on um, with Bet, this this discussion about um, David Hamelach and the drain pipes that he dug. Sorry, it's really at the bottom of Amiral. David Shitin. So these Shitin, which appeared two dafim ago appear again, these drain pipes. 
that sort of somehow tap into the the depths, like the real home of the world. Um, and so I just wanted to note that we 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 see the sheetine here again. So, um, you know, a, a challenge for I think somebody to do a little work on is the role of the sheetine in the Gemara, because now we've seen two Dapim talk about it, and they're all related to drain pipes being in the temple and somehow tapping into the Tahome and bringing that type of water up. So I just want to go back and say one more thing about the the juggling and the knives and all like that. Um, you said if it's like tricks, I feel like this tradition of tricks being part of the Simcha in Judaism goes back to here, right? Like I think that you, know, you go to a wedding and I could say from personal experience, I know that when a cousin of mine got married and there was you know, another friend like went and juggled fire and it was very labic, very lively, very, a lot of crazy tricks, as you say. And um, my sister said to my brother-in-law, why didn't we have fire jugglers at our wedding? And my brother-in-law said, we didn't know we could, right? But meaning like, so it's a good line, but the point is that in we have different cultures now where not everybody's going to be juggling fire or knives or whatever, but it, but the phenomenon of having wild and crazy be part of joy and rejoicing, I think is, is attested to here. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, it, you know, it's a very vivid dot. And I think it's a lot of beautiful description about what this all could have looked like. Very much so. So I'm going to jump now to the Mishnah on Amabet. And it also gives us a, a vivid depiction of something I think we don't usually think about in terms of our, at least not my, conception of the Beit HaMikdash. There's one that they would, you can't have fewer than 21 shofar blasts in the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, not less than 21. You don't have more than 48. What are we talking about here? We're not talking about Rosh Hashanah. We're talking about daily, that every single day, every single day they blew 28, 21 tikiot, um, they had three in the morning when they would open up the gates, they blew nine at the time of the offering of the korban, uh, the daily, uh, the daily sacrifice, and another nine in the afternoon sacrifice, meaning the daily afternoon sacrifice. And any additional offerings would get another nine. So that means that they had three and nine and nine and nine, and that gets us to twenty-one. On Fridays they would add another six, meaning as it's getting close to Shabbat. Three shofar blasts would warn people, like it's time to finish up your work. Shabbos is coming. And another three that would be, like I guess the immoral equivalent would be the siren nowadays that that you know reminds people that it's candlelighting time. The idea that we're going to have a demarcation between kodesh and chol that were really in this case from chol to kodesh, right? That we're about to have Shabbat and we're about to embark on the holy day. Erev Shabbat to hayusham now, when Shabbat, when Arab Shabbat fell out to be, um, when Arab Shabbat is Cholamoid Sukkot, right? That's what we're talking about here. Then we would have 48 blasts. Why? How did that work? 
the same way as before, three at the opening of the gates, another three when they would open the upper gate, and another three for the for the bottom gate, and another three when they would come to fill the vessels with water, which we'd already talked about, and another three at the point that they would pour that water libation on the altar, and nine, as we said before, for the daily offering, another nine for the afternoon offering, if you had any, if there were additional offerings, and of course there were additional offerings, because it's Arab Shabbat, that is Cholamoid of Sukkot, they would have another nine, now it's Friday, right? And it's Erev Yantif, or Erev Shabbos, sorry. Erev Shabbos, they have to remind everybody to stop their malacha. Even people who are functioning at a lesser malacha level, because it's Cholamoid, still had to stop, had to remember to stop. And another three that would say, okay, now it's really Shabbos. So the most striking thing to me about all of this is this fact that they were that the shofar was being blown not only every morning in the Beit HaMikdash, but also throughout the day. If you've got in the Mincha, time for the Mincha, the Ben Arbaim uh, Korban, you would also have shofar blasts. And I feel like, wait, what? You know, like the the auditory illustration of what was happening in the temple on a regular day. I, I just, I've learned this Mishnah before. I'm embarrassed to say I've learned this Mishnah before. And it never gave me the visual in this way. or It's not visual. It's auditory, right? I never got the, the image or the depiction of the temple with the shofar being like a regular accompaniment in the same way that this Mishnah provides. Yeah, it's a it's a different concept. And even the machlokas that comes afterwards and the whole reading of how they calculate them. I think I just always thought of it as like you blew the chauffeur, you blew the chauffeur. Um, but it's much more intricate and thought out than I ever realized it was. Yes. And I, I think that it really was, you know, we've talked about this before, but the way the the temple experience was really like a whole body experience, right? There's incense, right? There's smells there and there's music and there's singing and there's, you know, the smells of the korbanot also. It's not just the incense. And it's this very holy, otherworldly korbanot reaching out to Hashem. And on the other hand, it's as physical, I don't just mean physical, I mean as sensory as can be. I think that the shofar, which is does exactly that, right? In this season, and here, Yordana, you've got your nice nister, where, we're, where we are blowing the shofar every day in the month of Elul, leading up to Rosh Hashanah, right? The idea here is that, yes, like there is something in that sensory call, right? The, the, the voice of the shofar, is is not just musical accompaniment. It it kind of stirs everybody to buddy to pay attention. The fact that they had this going on every day throughout the Beit Hamikdash, I wonder like to what extent do people have to kind of not get used to it too much and and allow themselves to be, you know, to stir to be stirred to pay attention to what's going on at that exact moment. The day is beginning. The korban is offered, and so on. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rinkus reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hajim website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.